We are today um, here in the church calendar on Transfiguration Sunday. You heard us read it uh, in our passage in Luke. And I think it's uh, important for us to recognize um, how important the Transfiguration is. You see our banners are white. We've got gold up here. It's both glory and suffering. Both glory and death. But by God's good providence, the resurrection. Let us ask God to bless the preaching of his word today. O oh God, our Father, we ask that you would bless us. Open up our eyes, take away the veil that we may see and hear. May we be faithful to take action from your word and do the things that please you. In Jesus' name, amen. So the book ends of the Epiphany, and remember the Epiphany is running from the baptism of Jesus to the transfiguration. And there are a lot of similarities in those two passages. If you look at Jesus' baptism and you look at what's going on in the transfiguration, we see these things. We see that in both passages, Jesus prays. In both passages, John, the baptizer, declares Jesus the Messiah. And in the passage, right before we get up on the mountain of transfiguration, Peter declares Jesus the Messiah. It is at the beginning of, God, of Jesus' ministry at baptism, the first stage of his ministry. Now we come to the second stage, which is the cross. We find that when Jesus leaves his baptism, he goes and he fights Satan. When he comes down from the Mount of Transfiguration, he fights and casts out a demon. We find in the first passage that the spirit descends as a dove. And in the second passage here today, we see that the spirit descends as a glory cloud. We also see that in his baptism, God the Father speaks, This is my beloved Son in whom I delight. And in this passage today, God the Father says, this is my beloved son, hear him. The transfiguration provides confirmation and assurance that God will bring all his promises to fruition. God lays out his plan from the fall to the glory that is to come through Christ, through suffering. Now, as we've been teaching these passages, we've been starting and working through Luke, the Gospel of Luke this year, and we finished up last Sunday with Luke chapter 6. So before we get into Luke 9 today, I want us to help because we always need context. We need to see what's happening. We want to recognize that in Luke chapter 7, we see that Jesus, after teaching his people and establishing his disciples as the new Israel, as the church, Jesus heals the centurion servant. He then goes and raises the son of the widow in Nain. 
we see that John the Baptist, maybe he was having doubts. Maybe he was trying to push his disciples to go and follow Jesus. I think that's the likely narrative. But he sends his disciples to say, Jesus, are you the one? We see that Jesus forgives the sins of the woman who anoints him with the alabaster jar. We see in chapter 8 that there are many women who minister to Jesus. Now I'm going to pause right there. At the end of 7 and the beginning of 8, there is this emphasis on women. Jesus did not just come to save men. No, he came to save all of mankind, which includes women. Women play an important role. I mean, after all, Jesus wouldn't be who he was without his mother, Mary. But more than that, he has come to redeem and establish both men and women. As we continue in chapter 8, we see the parable of the sower. Jesus tells that parable, and then we find that even his disciples are confused. So we see that Jesus responds and says, here are the purpose of the parables. And he quotes Isaiah chapter 6, verse 9, where he says, Seeing that they may not see, and hearing that they may not understand. The Lord teaches, and those to whom God does not reveal it, they stay in their sin and their blindness. He goes on, though, and to those, his disciples, and those that are willing to pause and listen and say, Lord, I don't understand this. I need to know and understand. He explains that parable of the sower. He then gives the parable of the revealed light. We then see that Jesus' mother and brothers come, and he says, Who are my mothers and brothers? It is they who come and listen and hear and follow my words. He then goes out with his disciples onto the Sea of Galilee, and a mighty storm rises up, and he brings peace and calm to it, demonstrating that Jesus, the Son of God, has power over creation. Not just creation in a soft way, but in a hard way. In a way that controls the universe around us. And then very interestingly, when they get to the other side, where are they? They're dealing with the demon-possessed man who no one could set free and no one could bind up. And yet, he demonstrates his power over Satan. So creation and the spiritual. He goes from there, and what does he do? He's then ministering to women again. He restores a girl to life. He raises her from the dead. And he heals a woman who'd been sick for a very long time. I only bring that up because it's important that we recognize sometimes folks, they get wrong-headed. They get focused on men alone. Jesus is at work in the lives of men and women, the old and the young. And of course, in an early chapter 9, we see that Jesus sends out the 12. He establishes them as the new church, the new Israel. And to go out, in chapter 6, he establishes them. In chapter 9, he sends them out to do ministry. 
And he sends them out, and they have success at it. And they come back, and we see that the powers, the political leaders of the day, Herod wants to see Jesus. He wants to seek him out. Jesus says, I have no intention of being tangled up in politics. Finally, he feeds the 5,000. And we see finally that he comes and Peter confesses that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah. And they're like, yes. See, he didn't want to go deal with Herod. And now we're declaring you. I'm saying, yes, I recognize you, that you're the Messiah. You're going to save us from all these terrible things in the world. And Jesus turns around and says, I'm telling you about my death, my suffering, and my resurrection. And he says, take up the cross and follow me. They're confused. They don't know what's going on. We know you're supposed to be the Messiah. You're supposed to set us free from the curse of sin. And they, the way they look at it is not for the forgiveness of their sins, but rather to take the curse of having evil leaders, other people rule over them. No, he's come to forgive sins. But in order to do that, he has to lay down his life as the sacrificial lamb. And that brings us to our passage today, Luke chapter 9, beginning in verse 28. Now it came to pass about eight days after these sayings that he took Peter, John, and James and went up on the mountain to pray. As he prayed, the appearance of his face was altered and his robe became white and glistening. And behold, two men talked with him who were Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his decease which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. But Peter and those with him were heavy with sleep. And when they were fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. Then it happened as they were parting from him that Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good for us to be here. And let us make three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. While he was saying this, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were fearful as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my beloved Son, hear him. When the voice had ceased, Jesus was found alone. But they kept quiet and told no one in those days of the things they had seen. Now there's a couple of very important things here. Now, as a pastor and as a man who studies God's Word, and I'm thinking about how to share it with you, sometimes I get really excited about what I see. Man, there's so much here. It's packed in. As a matter of fact, each one of the points today could be whole sermons all by themselves. There's so much packed into what's happening here at the Transfiguration. And we might say, oh, that's interesting. God did a little something there. I don't know. What is it even here for? Well, remember... We need to look not only at a passage that we're studying, but at the whole of God's Word as we look at it to gain the right and true understanding of it. First of all, Jesus takes these men and he goes up on a mountain. And it's really important. It says this in verse 28. Now it came to pass about eight days after these sayings that he took Peter, John, and James and went up on the mountain to pray. Now, there's a couple of things going on here. They're on a mountain. What do we know about mountains? Mountains are the places where we go to hear God. 
We know God is above us, not like above the sky, but, but perceptionally we think about these things. God is greater than I. He created everything. i got to try to reach him. I go up to a mountain. And it's very, very interesting that God speaks on mountains. And we saw this when he called the disciples. He took them up. Just like he did with the people of Israel, he was on a mountain, he was praying. He comes down, he establishes the disciples as the church, the new Jerusalem. And it's really interesting as we consider this passage because there's a couple of things going on here. One is that why did he say eight days? What's going on with the eight days? Well, some of that's going to pop out here in just a minute, but I want to point out that what do we see in about eight days in the scriptures? One, that priests were to cleanse themselves for seven days. They got their garments, and then on the eighth day they, could, they were purified and they could go and serve. That's important to consider here, just as a little bit of an image. But there's also, Jesus was resurrected on the eighth day. Or excuse me, resurrected on the seventh in the church, excuse me. He's resurrected on the... Yes, the eighth day. I'm confused for a second. But yes, he was resurrected on the eighth day. It's the first day of the week. And that's why we worship on Sundays. This is real important to see this, how it ties in. It helps us to see some other things. But he also took Peter, James, and John and went up on the mountain to pray. To understand that a little better, we've got to look at Exodus 19. And it says this in, in Exodus 19, that it came to pass on the third day... In the morning there were thunderings and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain, and the sound of the trumpet was very loud so that all the peoples in the camp trembled. So they see that they're at the mountain. The people of Israel are there. There's all this stuff going on. God is up there. Then the Lord came down upon Mount Sinai on the top of the mountain, and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. That's verse 20. And we see that God is up there, Moses is up there. And again, remember, who shows up at Transfiguration? Moses is there, right? With Jesus. But it's very interesting. If you go to chapter 24 of Exodus, where the people of Israel are still at Mount Sinai, and they're still being established as the people of God, it says this, Then Moses went up, also Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, and the 70 elders of Israel. So there's some parallels here. First of all, God's on the mountain. God is establishing his covenant. And who does he take? Who are the three special people? He took Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu. There's three men, and two of them were brothers, just like Peter, James, and John. <coughs> Excuse me. Again, in Exodus 24, we see the sight of the glory of the Lord was like a consuming fire on the top of the mountain and in the eyes of the children of Israel. Now think about this for a second. That we recognize that God is on the mountain. And we see this. We know he's speaking here in, at the transfiguration. If we come back to Luke chapter 9 and verse 29, it says, And he prayed, that's Jesus, and the appearance of his face was altered, and his robe became white and glistening. Again, back to Exodus, we see in chapter 34, And whenever the children of Israel saw the face of Moses, that the skin of Moses' face shone, then Moses would put a veil on his face again until he went up to speak to him, to speak with him. And this is important, 
Moses in the Old Testament at the establishment of the people of Israel goes up on the mountain, talks to God, and by being in God's presence, he begins to shine, his face begins to shine. And sometimes I've heard it preached, oh, he's putting a veil on because he didn't want people to know that it was, it was, uh, you know, it was about his pride. They didn't want it to know that it was fading after a period of time. No, I don't think that was it at all. The people were afraid. How does your face shine and alter? But we see that Jesus, his face was altered. His robe became white and glistening. What are the robes of the priests? They're white. There's an establishment here with Jesus as being the face of God. And his robes are white as our high priest. So why is, why is it important that Moses and Elijah are there on the Mount of Transfiguration? Luke chapter 9, verse 30 says, And behold, two men talked with him, who were Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his decease, which he was about to accomplish in Jerusalem. So Moses is representative of the law, of the covenant promises. And Elijah is representative of the prophets. So when, this, when the uh, folks of the New Testament, the teachers of the law, even the disciples, even Jesus, they would refer to all of God's word up to that point to be the law and the prophets. This is significant. And so they are talking with Jesus. Now it's interesting, when you look at this word, and I know in other translations it's translated differently, but it says that Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his decease. It's a, it's a funny way for us to translate it here, because that Greek word is exodos. Exodos. What does that sound like? Exodus, right? That's actually the, the very word, if you look at the Greek Septuagint, when you look at Exodus and all of what God was doing, bringing the people out, here we see Exodus, and this also means not only to go out, but also the close of one's life, one's final fate. They were speaking, Moses and Elijah were speaking to Jesus and talking, not just of his going out and leading the people out of sin, but it is going to be the close of all that he's doing, his fate, his calling, that he was about to accomplish in Jerusalem. And remember this, the law and the prophets. What did Jesus say in Matthew 5, 17? Do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. Moses and Elijah were up there talking to Jesus, and they were excited because they were going to see the fruition of everything that God had promised in the law and the prophets. If we're not sure yet that Jesus is the one to whom the law and the prophets are pointing. Think about the road to Emmaus in Luke 24, verse 25, or beginning with verse 25. Then he, that is Jesus, said to them, O foolish one, and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Ought not the Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them all in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Now, this is really interesting. Jesus has to explain it to him, and they still don't get it. You have to go a few more verses ahead where he breaks the bread and communes to them 
the face of God and forgiveness through the resurrection. And it says, then they recognized him. Then their eyes were opened. This is wonderful. Now there's something very interesting here because, again, when we consider Moses, Elijah, and Jesus, this is really important here, folks. Moses did a lot of great things. But who did greater things than Moses for the people? Who saw the promises of Moses to fulfillment? Joshua. The Spirit of the Lord blessed Moses, established the kingdom and the people of Israel with Moses, and then he hands it off to Joshua, who does greater and mightier things. And of course, if we look at Elijah, we see that he does many great miracles and speaks God's truth. And Elisha, what happens? He wants a double portion of what Elijah has. Remember, he says, please give me this blessing. I won't let go till you give me the blessing so that I may have a double portion. And if you go back and you look, Elisha has exactly twice as many miracles recorded. So what is this Jesus and the doubling up? Who will do greater things than Jesus himself? The Spirit-filled church. John chapter 14, verse 12 says this, Most assuredly, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also. And greater works than these he will do, because I will go to my Father. What power. What a promise. Think on this for just a moment. When you come to Acts chapter 2, and Peter preaches... And 3,000 people in a single day come to know Christ. Jesus never has a record of that. They start out. And what happens? In, in less than a generation, the church expands all over. All over. By the work of Jesus and the coming of the Spirit, the church does greater things. Now, we're not greater than Jesus. Our power comes because he sits at the right hand of the Father. But this is important for us to remember as Christians. Now, let's consider Peter and the tabernacles. I think this is often, again, misunderstood. It says this, But Peter and those with him were heavy with sleep, and when they were fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. Then it happened as they were parting from him that Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good for us to be here, and let us make three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. We take that not knowing what he said was, he, did, he was clueless. He didn't know anything that was happening. Well, it wasn't that strange for him to come to a conclusion here. What's, what's been going on? They see the law and the prophets and Moses and Elijah there. They see that Jesus' face is shining. His robes are glorious. There's something going on here. God is there. Think on this now. Leviticus chapter 23, verse 33 says this, Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel, saying, The fifteenth day of this seventh month shall be the Feast of the Tabernacles, for seven days to the Lord. 
On the first day there shall be a holy convocation, and you shall do no customary work. For seven days you shall offer an offering made by fire to the Lord. Listen up. On the eighth day you shall have a holy convocation, and you shall offer an offering made by fire to the Lord. It is a sacred assembly, and you shall do no customary work on it. Eighth day, they're up on the mountain. Peter's not ignorant of what Leviticus says. He's thinking, wow, I, I can see some connections here. Maybe I need tabernacles because that's what the Feast of the Tabernacles is about. I'll simply say this. If you, if you look at commentators, particularly those that are interested in understanding the connections of the Old Testament very clearly and, and see the imagery and the types and the themes, we understand that the word here for tabernacles, which we think, okay, tabernacle, God's tabernacle, what's happening there, that, that word actually, and, and this feast of booze or tabernacles, is about <coughs> clouds. And they would take these branches so that they could imitate the idea that they were high in the air. They were being lifted up where the, what? The clouds are, right? The glory cloud that was at over the people of Israel in, in Exodus and in, in, in the, the days of Moses, right? This was the purpose. They are being elevated up into the presence of God. This is, you can see this in 2 Samuel 22, Job 36, Psalm 18, and Isaiah 4, just as a few points of references. You know, we forget because we live, we think, in literal ways all the time. But you know, they lived symbolically as the heavenly people when they were doing the Feast of the Tabernacles just below the firmament of heaven, and they did it for a whole week. I just want to point this out because Peter wasn't crazy. He wasn't way off. He was thinking about these things. This was the greatest feast of the year, the Feast of Tabernacles. And living in such tree houses could be so much fun, certainly for the children. It was a big feast. Children? It is a good thing to be in the presence of God. It is full of joy and feasting. Again, we could look and also understand that from the clouds comes rain. And we can see that in God's word, that this rain, this baptism that they went through by going through the Red Sea that we see later on is actually the coming of his people and his promises. We see also, this is made clear to us, if we're not certain, the establishment of his people. We understand from, from Peter chapter 3, where he says, he makes this, this point uh, as it relates to being baptized and understanding of the importance of being uh, in the presence of God, how water and clouds and all these things are important. We see this, it says this in 1 Peter chapter 3. When once the divine long-suffering waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is eight souls, were saved through the water, there is also an antitype which now saves us. Baptism, not the removal of filth of the flesh, 
but the answer of the good conscience towards God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, angels and authorities and powers having been made subject to him. Now, I don't want to get too tied up other than to say this. Why do we have the blessing? Because Jesus Christ went to the cross. He died. Our sins are forgiven when we confess them. And what? Why will we do greater things? We will do greater things because he sits at God's right hand. And he has all authority over all things. We receive assurance by the transfiguration that Jesus is king over all. All his promises from his word will be fulfilled. I want to just make a couple of last points as we close out. Jesus was found alone. We see that there in the passage of Luke. After all these great things happen and they're thinking about this, the Spirit of God comes. We see this. And then Jesus is found alone. Jesus is greater than Moses and Elijah. He's the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. He brings clarity to God's word by removing the veil, the blindness of our minds. Think of our passage today from the epistle, 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Therefore, since we have such hope, we use great boldness of speech. Unlike Moses, who put a veil over his face so the people of Israel could not look steadily at the end of what was passing away. But their minds were blinded, for until this day, the same veil remains unlifted, in reading of the Old Testament, because the veil is taken away in Christ. But even to this day, when Moses is read, a veil lies on the heart. Nevertheless, when one turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Again, think about this at the road to Emmaus, when he taught the law and the prophets, and then... He had to remove the veil for them to understand. <coughs> Excuse me. So how then should we live? What is, the, what is the purpose of this? Well, Jesus is going to come down this mountain and he's going to turn his head to Jerusalem so that he will suffer and die and pay the penalty for our sins. But it's more than that. You see, when, when Moses took Aaron and his sons on the mountain, he was establishing this covenant. And there was Moses and the other four corners were the priests, the high priest and his sons. Instead, we see now that Jesus is the cornerstone, right? And he has Peter, James, and John as the other four corners. With that, we can understand this in 2 Peter chapter 1. Coming to him as to a living stone, rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious, you also as living stones, that's you and me, we're living stones, are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Therefore it is also contained in the scriptures, Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he who believes on him will by no means be put to shame, Isaiah 28, 16. Again, in 1 Peter, Therefore, those of you who believe, he is precious, but those 
to those who are disobedient, the stone which the builders rejected had become the chief cornerstone. That's from Psalm 118, 22. It also says this about Jesus in verse 8. A stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. That's Isaiah chapter 8 that Peter is quoting. He goes on, Peter, and says, Peter goes on and says this. They stumble being disobedient to the word to which they were also appointed. But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may, what? Proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, who once were not a people, but are now the people of God, who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. If you were here on Sunday night or if you've had a chance to watch the video of, of Dr. Jeffrey when he came and spoke here on Sunday night, he made a very important point that for all the things that are raging out there in the world, real war as we see it, to the cultural war, to those that are God-haters, all the things that are raging about us, we have to remember that we know that Jesus is Lord. He is King. And we know the very end that the knowledge of the Lord will cover the sea. The knowledge of the Lord will cover all of the world. All of the world will come to know Jesus. They will be discipled. Our post-millennial view tells us that Jesus not only will win, but has won, and that all the nations will be discipled. You and I, men, women, little children, folks that are a little more seasoned, we are all the people of God. Together, we are the church. We are called to worship, to pray, and to proclaim, not just here on Sunday, but each and every day, in all things and in all circumstances, together as the people of God. How are we all worshiping, praying, and proclaiming with the people of God today and throughout the week? Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. I pray that we would come to a humble understanding of your work, that there is nothing by accident in your word. Help us, O oh Lord, to rightly worship, to pray and proclaim with your people to the world. In Jesus' name, amen.